Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tax and spend, President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan, and the tax, ri- the tax ri- raises to pay for it. Off the menu, Deliveroo shares plunge on its stock market debut. And Volkswagen's Voltface, the carmaker's name change prank misfires. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Wednesday. Let's begin with a check of the markets. U.S. futures are mostly higher as we kick off the last trading day of the first quarter. The action on Wall Street has been choppy so far this week amid investor nervousness over the failure of investment fund Archegos. But the overall economic news from the U.S. remains solid. Just released numbers show that some 517,000 private sector jobs were added to the U.S. economy this month. It's a bit weaker than expected, but the biggest gain in six six months. The U.S. reporting yesterday that consumer confidence is at its highest levels since the start of the COVID crisis. A separate report shows housing prices rising at their fastest pace in 15 years. Taking a look at other global markets, a weaker picture in Europe and Asia, China fell despite news that factory activity there strengthened further this month. In Tokyo, shares of the Mitsubishi UJF Financial Group fell more than 3 percent after disclosing potential losses of some $300 million due to the Archegos debacle. Credit Suisse is falling further in European trading today, too, as it also tallies up the damage from doing business with Archegos. Okay, let's get right to the drivers now. And another big focus for investors, the release of President Biden's massive new spending proposal. The U.S. president travels to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania today to lay out his vision for an America with state-of-the-art transportation and a greener economy. His Build Back Better plan will necessitate higher corporate taxes. Wall Street will be closely watching the response on Capitol Hill to see how much he can get passed. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to see you. So many questions with this one. First of all, walk us through, uh, you know, what's in it. How much will it cost? Who's going to pay for it? And I think the biggest question of all, will this massive thing pass? It's big. Let's first start there. It's big. And the White House itself is framing this, Allison, as a once in multiple generation chance to get a fairer economy for everyone. In fact, they're casting this as public domestic spending like we haven't seen since the United States built its highway system and won the space race. That's the way the White House is framing this. So what's in it? The first thing we're going to hear about today is infrastructure. And we are talking about the electric grid, clean drinking water, high-speed broadcast, Broadband, roads, bridges, rails, the child care economy, all kinds of things. How do you pay for it? Raising the corporate rate to 28%. That's what markets and corporate executives are really watching here. Increase the global minimum tax on, on U.S. companies. Uh, end federal subsidies for fossil fuel firms and close loopholes and end some deductions that even after tax reform in 2017, uh, this administration, the Biden administration says, you know, some companies just have an edge on others because of those loopholes in, uh, in corporate tax reform. What you're hearing a lot from the White House in this lengthy, uh, 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 this lengthy sort of one sheet fact sheet they sent out, which is actually like 38 pages, 
is that this is about fairness. And the 2017 Trump tax cuts weren't fair. They were really skewed to companies and the very wealthy. And so to rebuild the American economy the right way in the minds of this administration, you will have rich Americans paying uh, a tax rate back to what they did under George W. Bush, and you will have companies footing the bill. I will point out, however, those corporate tax increases that are being proposed here at 28 percent, that's a starting point. Uh, Jen Psaki, Brian Deese, a lot of folks from the White House this morning are out there on, on television saying that they're, they're willing to talk about ways to pay for this, but 28% corporate tax rate still below the 35% pre-Trump tax cuts. Christine, we have a lot of Republicans uh, calling this basically a Democratic wish list, saying that it's going to cause a spike in inflation, cause interest rates to rise. Where does the public stand on this uh, proposal? How does the public feel about this? Well, many of these many of these are very very popular, right? And some of them, for example, the enhanced child tax credit, and some of the uh, some of the supports for working families that were passed under the uh, under the most recent one point nine uh, trillion dollar stimulus. They, they want to make that permanent. That would be the second part of this new big infrastructure push. That that'll be publicly that'll be hard to take some of those some of those things away. Some of those props for working families that they will feel and will allow more opportunity. Uh, two years of free community college. Polls show that's pretty popular as well. Um, there could be. We don't know for sure what's going to be in the second part of this, but there's talk of the minimum wage. Certainly many progressives and, and middle-of-the-road Democrats are really interested in raising the minimum wage. So we'll see what's in here. What you will hear from Republicans, though, is that this is an FDR-style new deal for the American worker and for the American public. And what you'll hear from progressives is, yeah, it's an FDR-style new deal for the American public. So uh, both agree that it's very big and potentially transformative. Uh, one side doesn't like it. The other does. The president has said again and again, though, he will not raise track, directly raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. On that, they've been consistent. Christine, thanks so much for thoroughly breaking that down and answering <laughs> all of my questions. Great you to see you. You had good questions. Thank you. Um, shares in Deliveroo plunging on its first day of trading. Uh, the food delivery service went public on the London Stock Exchange this morning. The highly anticipated listing was London's biggest in a decade. Anna Stewart joins me live now. You know, this is an Amazon-backed company, and you think that everything Amazon touches turns to gold? We are, we are not seeing it with this company. <laughs> Hi, Anna. We're really not. This, uh, this IPO did not really deliver, did it? The issue price was £3.90. In the first few minutes of trade, Alison, it slumped by around 30%. We'll bring you that share price now. You'll see it's at £2.86. It's had a little bit of recovery, but really not a good start. This was always going to be a really fascinating IPO. Delivery is a food delivery app. It's one of those sort of rare winners. It prospered during the pandemic, but it faces some really massive challenges. Take a look. Ready for that Burger King. A pandemic proved to be the perfect recipe for food delivery apps. With the public ordered to stay at home and restaurants ordered to shut their doors to diners, demand exploded. Your favourite restaurants are back on Deliveroo. Deliveroo's revenue jumped 64% last year compared to 2019. This sort of growth may not be sustainable. As lockdowns lift, and they already are here in the UK, people will be able to return to restaurants, to bars, to cinemas and nightclubs. And if you can go out, why stay in? Founded in London in 2013, Deliveroo hasn't yet turned a profit, despite the increased demand last year. In the initial stages of the pandemic, it was close to collapse and rescued by Amazon, which remains its biggest investor. 
Deliveroo operates in 12 markets around the world, but is most reliant on the UK and Ireland, which account for over half its revenue. It's not the first delivery app to join the IPO bandwagon. It follows Uber Eats' parent company, Grubhub, DoorDash and Just Eat. Did somebody say Just Although, Deliveroo has a slightly different offering. What Deliveroo does offer, which is different, is more access to, say, higher-end restaurants. Whereas some of its competitors, really going after the takeaway market, it's opened up the opportunity for you to go direct to your favourite restaurant and then have that delivered at home. Deliveroo also partners with restaurants, setting up delivery-only kitchens via its additions business, maximising supply of cuisine in high-demand locations. Several big UK investors have told CNN they won't be buying delivery shares due to concerns over workers' rights. Look at the recent ruling against Uber, and now Uber has promised to give all of its uh, workers in the UK workers' status. Now, even though Deliveroo would say that its model is different, and in fact it's fought through the courts to prove that, there is, without a doubt, going to be changes down the line, not least in the European market, because the European Commission is looking at the way the gig economy works. So in those markets that Deliveroo might want to expand into even further, there are questions about its model going forward. This is the year of food. There are clear challenges ahead for Deliveroo. Of course, that may not dampen investor appetite for yet another new tech stock on the market. Well, Alison, as it turns out, this stock simply wasn't tasty enough for many investors. And there are so many factors as to why. Lots weighing in here. There's the fact that it's a really crowded sector. I've seen multiple delivery drivers pass me in the last hour. Uh, the valuation was quite lofty, according to some investors, not least given this is a company that has not delivered a profit. There's the issue of the gig economy and whether or not this company will have to reclassify uh, some of its riders as employees, which would be very expensive. And also, this was a dual-class share structure listing. This is quite rare in the UK, much more common in the US and on the NASDAQ. And that meant the founder, Will Shu, would retain over 50% of voting shares. And that put off a lot of institutional investors who came out in days before saying they were going to shun the stock. And Alison, it looks like they have. All right. Anna Stewart, thanks so much for your great reporting. Fashion giant H&M responding to a firestorm in China over its comments on alleged forced labor in Xinjiang. H&M issues a statement saying it's dedicated to regaining the trust of Chinese customers. Selena Wang joins us live with more. From what I understand, Selena, this statement, at least the newest one from H&M, comes as part of H&M's first quarter 2021 earnings report. Allison, that's right. And we don't really learn much new information here. This statement is strategically very carefully worded. It doesn't mention anything that landed H&M in hot water in the first place. No mention of cotton, forced labor, or Xinjiang. Because what H&M is trying to do here is walk a very delicate tightrope. It is trying to both satisfy the Chinese consumer, trying to reduce the patriotic fury that it is the target of, while also trying to address human rights concerns. Now, in this statement, it says, quote, our long-term commitment to the country remains strong. Having been present there for more than 30 years, we have witnessed remarkable progress within the Chinese textile industry. We are dedicated to regaining the trust and confidence of our customers, colleagues, and business partners in China. This is a key market, as they say in that statement. It is one of its top five biggest markets. And 
H&M all got into this hot fire because the Communist Party Youth League, a group linked to the Communist Party, recently dug up a six-month-old statement where H&M had expressed concerns about reports of forced labor in cotton production in Xinjiang. That then unleashed a fury of nationalistic outrage from state media, from internet influencers. It quickly spread to many other Western brands, many other foreign brands, including Nike and Burberry. But really, H&M has been hit the hardest from this outrage. Analysts expect that they are going to see the biggest financial drop, but that for all the brands, this is going to be temporary and short-lived, and it will eventually bounce back. Selena, we're also hearing that BBC, the broadcast network, has moved its China correspondent to Taiwan from Beijing. Do you know what is behind that move? Well, Allison, this is just another example of how it is just becoming harder and harder to be a foreign correspondent in China. This comes as the BBC has been under enormous pressure for its reporting, especially in its critical reporting of Xinjiang. Recently, the BBC World News was banned from China. Last year, we had many foreign journalists from the U.S. get expelled from major news organizations from their bases in China. The Foreign Correspondents Club of China says that press freedoms are are rapidly declining and that authorities in China are using all arms of state to intimidate and harass journalists. They released a statement about John Sudworth's move. They said that, quote, Sudworth left after months of personal attacks and disinformation targeting him and his BBC colleagues. He forms one of an ever larger number of journalists driven out of China by unacceptable harassment. Now, the BBC had recently reported stories of women in China who said that they faced systematic rape, abuse and torture in camps in Xinjiang. This is where the U.S. State Department estimates as many as two million people would be detained in internment camps. This is something that Beijing has strongly denied. They have accused the BBC of spreading lies. Now, the BBC has not elaborated on this move from Beijing to Taiwan for John Sudworth, but they did say that Sudworth his work exposed truths about China that the authorities did not want to see. Allison. Okay, Selena Wang, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. The third day of testimony in the Derek Chauvin murder trial resumes in Minneapolis next hour. Yesterday, six witnesses who saw George Floyd die took the stand, four of them age 18 and under, and some of them choking back tears. My instincts were telling me that something's wrong. Something has not right. I don't know what, but something wasn't right. They called the police on the police. Right. And why did you do that? Because uh, I believe I witnessed a murder. I almost walked away at first because it was a lot to watch, but I knew that it was wrong and I couldn't just walk away. He wasn't moving and he was cuffed and that's a, a three grown men is a lot of putting all their weight on somebody is too much. Germany has announced it's restricting the general use of AstraZeneca COVID vaccines to people 60 years and older. Chancellor Angela Merkel says her government can't ignore recent findings of what she calls very rare but very serious cases of blood clotting in people who got the AstraZeneca shot. For the first time in Brazil's history, a president is replacing all three military commanders at once. 
just a day after Jair Bolsonaro shuffled his cabinet, replacing six key ministers with loyalists. The government announced the chiefs of the Army, Navy and Air Force are stepping down. Still to come on First Move, foreigners flock to Serbia to get vaccinated as the country races ahead of its neighbors. CNN speaks to Serbia's president. And Saudi stimulus, the kingdom plans to invest $1.3 trillion to diversify its economy away from oil. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are on track for a mostly higher open as investors await details of President Biden's new tax and spend proposals, a continuation of the most ambitious U.S. government spending initiative in decades. The president is set to announce more than $2 trillion worth of fresh spending today for infrastructure and other programs. Shares of Pfizer and BioNTech are set to rise in early trading. New U.S. data shows their COVID vaccine has a perfect 100 percent efficacy rate for young people ages 12 to 15. The study shows the vaccine is well tolerated in that age group, too. The vaccine is currently approved for U.S. adults 16 years and over. The company hopes or the companies hope the government will widen eligibility soon. Serbia becoming a regional vaccination hub. People from neighboring countries are flocking to Serbia to get COVID-19 vaccines. Fred Pleikin is in Belgrade with the story. An abundance of vaccine doses and a lightning fast rollout. Serbia, a non-EU state, is setting the pace in Europe, fully vaccinating people with two doses quicker than any other country on the continent. Zoran Tsakic just got his second shot. About 10-15 minutes. So it was very no, easy. Very easy, very, very smooth, very fast. Serbia has so much vaccine, they're even offering free shots to foreigners, like Tomas Cooper from the Czech Republic, who came here on a work trip and decided to get inoculated as well. Freedom, I guess. Uh, freedom to behave normally again. Serbia's secret, they ordered vaccines early. They ordered a lot, and they ordered from various manufacturers, Chinese, Russian, and Western companies. The country's biggest vaccine center at the Belgrade Fair alone administers around 8,000 doses per day, the center's head says. Thanks to authorities in our country, we have, I think, much more uh, vaccines than in other uh, parts in Europe. Another key to the fast rollout, an easy-to-use registration site that cuts down on unnecessary bureaucracy, Serbia's head of e-governing explains. Your ID number, name, surname, and it's very important, uh, email address, mobile phone or fixed phone, because we are going to invite you uh, via SMS and email. Unlike the EU, which is facing severe vaccine shortages, Serbia is donating vaccines to neighboring countries and allowing their citizens to get vaccinated in Serbia, making the country a regional vaccination hub. Also out of self-interest, the prime minister tells me. We are also trying to support mostly uh, the region. Uh, So our neighboring countries, uh, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, because... uh, um, if I mean we are we are a small region and uh, and if they are not safe 
even when we get the, the collective immunity, we are not going to be uh, safe. But like many countries, Serbia is facing rising numbers of new coronavirus infections and has had to put new restrictions in place. The only way out of the pandemic, the government believes, is to keep vaccinating as fast as possible. And Fred Pleiken is with us live now from Belgrade. Hi, Fred. Hi there, Allison. Yeah, I'm live here, and I'm very fortunate to have the president of the country, Alexander Vucic, with me as well. First of all, sir, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. And you know, one of the things that we heard, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, that especially smaller countries would have a lot of problem getting their hands on vaccines, especially if they're you know, not necessarily financially the strongest. But here you are, you have an abundance of vaccines. How did you do it? Well, first of all, thank you for this great opportunity just have to say that it's, for us, it was not a matter of geopolitics. It was a matter of saving people's lives. And we prepared ourselves, in a, I think, in a very best way. It meant, number one, we invested hugely into digitalization of Serbia. And uh, you're going to see today at that Belgrade Fair that uh, how that is well organized. It means that our softwares are among the best in the world. And I'm profoundly uh, grateful and proud uh, regarding those people that were able to pursue it here in Serbia. And I'm very happy that we were successful on this. Number two, speaking about procurement, which was, let's say, the most important in this first stage. Uh, we tried and we got vaccines from all different parts of the world. Now you can get American vaccine, American drug, uh, European, which is British AstraZeneca, then Russian Sputnik V or Chinese Sinopharm. You can take whichever you want. It's up to you. If you want to take a shot here, if you want to take a job here, you can do it. And so no basically, you, you didn't make any differences. You didn't have any massive preferences. You just got what you could get. Is that correct? Of course. Mm. Of course, our choice was uh, to get uh, as much as we could, as many as we could. And uh, of course, our agency uh, had to approve all these vaccines. They did it. And uh, then we started uh, with this vaccination on which I'm very proud. And I think that uh, it's not good only for Serbia, but it's good for an entire region. Mm. And people, people started coming here to Serbia from not only Western Balkans, but even from wider area. And to tell you the truth, we, we don't mind that we are. We just think that uh, everybody has to take these two shots and to be saved. And uh, you cannot separate Serbia from the others in this region. That, that's what I was going to ask you, because that is, that's a big step to take. Because you do have other countries that are very successful in vaccinating, the UK, the United States. But, but no one is giving away vaccine and allowing people to, to come in. Um, why take that step? And is, it, is that really putting a dent also into people getting the vaccine here, or does it not make a difference? First of all, I think that the most important issue is whether we are able to save people's lives or not. And if we can help someone in Sarajevo or Podgorica or Skopje, that's pretty much the same as we do with people, although I'm responsible only for people, or we are responsible for people in Kragujevac, Nish, Novi Sad, Belgrade. But this is our region. We live close to each other. They are our neighbors. And we, if we can be helpful to them, that's good. If they can be helpful to us, 
Many thanks to them, and that's it. I think it's very much fair, and uh, at the same time, it shows that all of us are future-oriented, that we don't go, or at least we don't want to go to the past, speaking about uh, different divisive issues and everything else. Okay, if we can do something together, that's good, and that's very important. And at the end, I can tell you that our economic situation uh, has not deteriorated, deteriorated or our economy was not contracted in a way that the others were, and uh, we had a 2021 just minus 0.9% growth rate, which was number one or number two uh, growth rate in the entire Europe, which allowed us, of course, to focus on our healthcare system and to improve it and to get as many vaccines as it was possible. So when, when we were at the vaccine center, we saw people from Austria, from Germany, from the Czech Republic, as well as, as, as people from, from, uh, from other nations from this region. How long are you going to be able to keep this up? Because that's, uh, that's a lot of vaccine that you're, that you're giving away. Yes, but uh, we thought about it and uh, we'll have enough. We expect now in, in this month, in, in next month, in April, we expect to get almost, almost 500,000 from Pfizer and one million from Sinopharm, and uh, several hundred thousands uh, shots from Moscow, which means that we'll be able to deliver it to our people always, and to the others as well. So what's your, what's your message then to, to the European Union? Because they're having some problems, and obviously a lot of countries are now looking towards Serbia and see what they can learn from you. We were just very dedicated and devoted, but we work along with European Union, and we're going to get, I forgot to say this, we're going to get from COVAX program around 60,000 jobs uh, in a few days, and that's, uh, we are very thankful to European Union. They are our partners. We are on our EU path, and we don't forget it. They helped us a lot after those terrible floods. Okay, it was not easy getting those vaccines, and it was easier to us, to be very honest, because uh, we had open gates, we had open doors in all sides. We made bilateral arrangements, first, firstly with Pfizer, then with uh, Sinopharm, then with uh, AstraZeneca, then with Sputnik. But it was not very difficult for us because of, our, because of our geopolitical position, but we didn't care about it. We cared only about people's lives, and, and that was the simplest and the easiest possible solution. Sure. Thank you very much for taking time to speak with us. You're very, well, you're very welcome and enjoy your stay in Belgrade. Thank you. And take a job if you didn't so far. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. You're very sir. welcome. So you see, Alison, it really is a success story that we're seeing here. I, I can't even tell you how many foreigners we also saw in that vaccination center, and it really is moving at a very, very fast and impressive pace, Alison. Yeah, Serbia is certainly a real model into how to effectively and efficiently vaccinate a wide population. Fred, great interview. Thank you. And the opening bell is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday, and we've got a higher open on this last day of trading for the month and the first quarter. Tech is leading the charge as bond yields fall from 14-month highs. Little market reaction, though, to news that 517,000 new private sector jobs were created in the U.S. this month. It's the best number in months and a sign that Friday's U.S. jobs report may come in strong. Stocks in the news today include online pet supply retailer Chewy, 
Shares are rallying after the company reported a surprise quarterly profit. Revenues rose more than 50 percent compared to last year. Chalk it up, perhaps, to the rise of pet ownership during the pandemic. It will take much longer for women to achieve the same pay as men, according to estimates out today. The World Economic Forum predicts it'll take nearly 136 years to close, that, uh, to close the gap. That's up from nearly 100 years in a previous estimate. It also predicts it'll take 268 years to close the economic gender gap as the pandemic rolls back years of progress. Sadia Zahidi is the managing director of the World Economic Forum, and she joins me live. Great to see you. Good to be here. This is a really important issue, and this, what this report finds is really stunning. It, it finds that the global gender gap grew wider during the pandemic, meaning women fell behind even more uh, from getting on that equal footing with men. A lot of years mentioned here. I just want to clear the air here. Is this timing literal? It could take 135 years to parity? No, what these are are trends that look at the past and try to extrapolate into the future. These are not hard and fast, and we can't possibly predict precisely where the gender gap will go. But what we can tell you is that a year and a half ago, when we did the last report, it would have taken 100 years to get to gender parity. Now it would take nearly 136 years. And so the pace of change has really slowed down. And in many parts of the world, the pandemic has had a massive impact in taking back, rolling back years of progress. So walk us through the areas where you see women failing to achieve uh, this equality with men. So overall, if we just take a snapshot of where the world is today, um, education gender gaps have mostly been closed. Health-related gender gaps have mostly been closed. Economic gender parity is just under 60%, but it has frankly been stalled there for a long time, and now the pandemic just made it worse. And when it comes to political empowerment, only about 25% of that gap has been closed, and there's a very long way to go to get to parity. And that, too, became a little worse in many large emerging markets in particular. Now, the pandemic in particular over this last year, what's happened is when a billion school children around the world were suddenly at home, most families went back to very traditional gender roles and women ended up having the burden of both care responsibilities in the home in addition to their workplace responsibilities and essentially facing a double shift. In addition, the sectors that tend to be very large employers of women, whether that's travel and tourism or consumer and retail sectors, these were the sectors that essentially shut down almost everywhere in the world. And so that's the other reason women were so deeply impacted over this last year. So what needs to be done to close the gender gap? What solutions are there? I think we have to look outward. And that is to try to understand what will be the growing jobs of the future. And as hiring rates pick up over the coming year or so, ensure that there is a game plan in place on the parts of companies and employers more broadly to ensure that that hiring is done in a gender equal way, to ensure that there are measures in place for promotions and progressions to be gender equal. It's the stuff that we have known for a very long time. That's what really needs to be put in place and embedded because there is no better opportunity than a crisis to get this done. The second element is on the government side. So if we want to get this right, 
most governments will need to put in place, whether it's in advanced economies or in large emerging markets, they will need to put in place a care infrastructure that allows for better solutions for childcare and elder care than the current solution, which is mostly unpaid care work on the part of women. And there's a double win to be had from that. For most governments, that will actually provide a lot of broader stimulus to the economy because care work is a massive job creator. And so for most governments, if they do this, they get a big return on investment, not just for those individuals and families, but they actually get a broader economic win. But if we look to the future, this report also finds that women aren't well represented in what's considered fast-growing jobs of tomorrow, jobs that are actually here today, but nevertheless jobs of tomorrow. Why are they underrepresented in these uh, very key positions? Yeah. So we look at a, a fairly large set of professions of tomorrow, and that includes, for example, roles in artificial intelligence, roles in data, roles in cloud computing. Let's take the cloud computing example. Right now, only 14% of the talent in cloud computing is female. And that is going to be a problem in the long term because those are exactly the roles that are essentially building our future economies and societies. And there's two issues there. One is the supply side. So it is mm -hmm. true, for example, in the United States, women make up about one third of those that are getting science, technology, engineering, and math degrees. So one issue is the supply side. The other issue is the demand side. And that is where companies need to change their practices. These roles, whether they are within the IT industry itself or whether they are in other industries, still tend to be more male dominated than they need to be. So for example, if cloud, cloud computing is at 14%, we know that there's actually a much larger pool of talent that is female that's available. So there's a double hit that's happening. One, not enough women in the pipeline, and then not enough hiring on the part of the companies. Mm -hmm. Okay, Sadia Zahidi, great topic, uh, important topic. Thanks for coming on the show. Sadia Zahidi, a Managing Director of the World Economic Forum. Saudi Arabia launching a $3 trillion stimulus plan as it attempts to diversify its economy. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman says the country's biggest companies, including uh, energy giant Aramco, would lead the investments by 2030. If you take the 27 trillion rials or $7 trillion over the next 10 years, what does that number mean? This number means that in the next 10 years, the spending in the kingdom will be more than what has been spent in the past 300 years since the founding of the first Saudi Arabia. There will be 10 years of spending more than Saudi's history before the oil and after the oil. That's huge. And John Dubterios joins me live. So, John, this is a project with big ambitions. Is it realistic? And what, what are Saudi companies doing to drive this? I have to say, you have to look at the optics here, uh, Alison, because it's highly unusual for Mohammed bin Salman to front something like this. So it gives you a sense of the importance and the sense of urgency that he has. Uh, he's talking about big numbers, historical change uh, for Saudi Arabia away from oil. This is a program called Sharik, which in Arabic means partner. Uh, I think the key component of this is that the two key partners are Saudi Aramco that you talked about. The second one is Sabek, the chemical giant which uh, 
Saudi Aramco owns 70% of here. They're going to drive up to 60% of this investment over that period uh, of 10 years. But that number of $3 trillion is extraordinary uh, in itself. Uh, and we heard MBS talk about $7 trillion. He's making a calculation of the additional government spending and then private consumption over that time as well. So I think that's overly uh, ambitious. Uh, another key player here is one you've heard of before, the Public Investment Fund, the Sovereign Fund, uh, known as PIF. He wants that to grow in the near term to a trillion dollars, take that money and reinvest again. Uh, it's run by Yasser al-Rumayyan, who's a very close confidant of the crown prince and people we've seen uh, in Saudi Arabia in the past. And another key objective, which is not mentioned in any of the pieces that have been done so far, is that the crown prince wants to have the Saudi family trading groups who are big investors in the Middle East and North Africa, in Europe and the United States. They're major, major players across many sectors. He wants that money to come back home saying the opportunity is at home. So we're going to set up a public-private investment pool here and you'll bring your money back home to help us grow this economy. John, talk to me about the timing of this. Uh, why does the crown prince, why is he choosing it to do this now? Well, you know, he's 35 years old and he laid out his, as deputy crown prince, his 2030 plan uh, going back to 2016 and 17. He's a man in a hurry. If you've read about him or have met him like we have, uh, he loves his key performance indicators, the KPIs, and he's putting those KPIs on himself. So you have to give him credit for trying to lay out this very aggressive timeline. Uh, he also needs to jumpstart foreign direct investment. If you look at one of the line items in this report here, it's bringing foreign direct investment back. And it has suffered, if you go back over the last four years, since the Ritz-Carlton roundup of the Saudi billionaires in the name of corruption that many people supported at home, but it scared off foreign investors because they were partners with many international companies. And again, the uh, killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi uh, also, again, didn't... Uh, play well outside Saudi Arabia and still is a big question mark. The final thing I'll say here, there's pretty good competition heating up in the region. Uh, the UAE just rolled out an industrial strategy just over a week ago, not with these sort of numbers, but wanting to diversify the economy because of the energy transition. Saudi Arabia is doing the same. They want to recruit regional companies that come in, and they're saying we're putting our money on the ground, come in and take advantage of the largest economy in the world. What's not realistic, $3 trillion, by the way, over 10 years, is four times the GDP. It sounds a little bit too ambitious, if you will, Allison, uh, but it's nice to have stretched targets. Let's put it that way. John Devterio's great context as usual. Thank you. Up next, minutes ago, online education platform Coursera made its trading debut on the NYSE. I'm joined by the CEO for an update. Shares in online education platform Coursera trading for the first time on the New York Stock Exchange this morning. The company went public at a valuation of over $4 billion. Demand for online learning exploded during the pandemic. Coursera's revenue was up 59 percent in 2020. Joining me now is Jeff Maggiancalda. He is the CEO of Coursera. Great to see you. Nice to be here. Thank you. Congratulations on your public debut. What's your reaction to the showing? Well, you know, we'll see where we go from here. It's been nine years building something that we think is really important. Uh, to some degree, this is a milestone, but to a large extent, this is really just the beginning of the work that we have to do still. 
you know, with Coursera going public, it's actually coming off of a year that was super disruptive for schools and businesses that were impacted by the pandemic. I looked at some numbers in your S-1 paperwork, and they show despite recording a revenue jump in 2020, Coursera actually posted a net loss of $66.8 million. That's actually up 43 percent from the previous year. Talk to me about what's going on here. I think what's going on really is the need for uh, world-class learning around the world. As the world changes, as technology and globalization require more people to get new knowledge and skills, um, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of content and credentials that we need to make available from top institutions, and we need to make them available to everybody in the world. So we're, we're investing aggressively to try to meet this need for people to have better access to education. But these losses, how much do they sort of make you nervous? Because in your filing, you also warned that there is no guarantee that your growth rate is going to continue after the pandemic is over. So what is your strategy post-pandemic, knowing about the pressures that you're currently under? Yeah, when we look at this, what started nine years ago uh, from Daphne and Andrew was a realization that people need better access to learning. And if we think about what happened with the pandemic, and you look at the disparity of impact and the the people who were most impacted, it is more clear than ever that the divide is growing if we don't create more equal access to education and more equal access to jobs. So when we look at the the opportunity over the long run, it's really to serve a world that more and more will need online education and more and more, frankly, will be having more uh, remote work opportunities. So I think there'll be more job opportunities to people even if those jobs are not in their local communities because of remote work. And I think there'll be more opportunity for people to learn and earn credentials and college degrees, even if they don't live near a college campus. Yeah. And as Coursera provides full degrees, and that comes with controversy, I want to hear what you say to your critics who worry that these contractual agreements, uh, these arrangements between online program management companies and colleges, where companies get a percentage of tuition revenue, wind up inflating costs for students. Yeah, well, the degrees that are offered on Coursera come from the universities, so they're not Coursera degrees. Some of the best universities in the world, HEC Business School in Paris, University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, they provide full degree programs on Coursera. They they admit the students, their instructors, their professors create the material, uh, their TAs grade the work. And when the students finish their degree, the degree that they get from the university is no different than they would get if they were on campus. So these are really full, high quality college degrees, no different than what you get on campus, but you just don't have to be on campus in order to get a degree from them. Okay, Jeff Magian Calda, CEO of Coursera. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, thanks. After the break, Volkswagen fizzles. We thought it was a joke. They said it wasn't. Then they said it was. VW's name change prank got a ton of publicity and not all of it was good. Welcome back. Volkswagen is coming under fire for a story everyone thought was an April Fool's joke, including us, until the company confirmed it to be true. Yesterday, we reported the automaker was changing its name to Volkswagen, V-O-L-T-S, in the U.S. in a commitment to an electric future. After that, we were told it was a joke after all. <laughs> That's a fake laugh. Claire Sebastian joins me live now. I'll tell you what, I am confused. I want to know uh, where this all started 
Is this a joke? Is this not a joke? Give us the bottom line. Yeah, Alison, I think we're still, you know, all a bit confused, honestly, about this. The company is supposed to clarify more uh, in, in another statement, which we're expecting today. Still no uh, sign of that yet. But look, there's, there's a number of serious problems with this. One, it came not on April 1st. So we weren't immediately on guard uh, for a prank like this. April 1st is, was still a few days away. Secondly, you know, they issued a false news release. Not only that, but there were reputable news outlets who, who said that a source familiar with the matter confirmed it was authentic. That suggests that someone within the company was lying to reporters. It then moved the share price. That could attract uh, scrutiny of regulators. And, and look at the company that's doing this as well, the Twitter chatter that has erupted around the fact that this was Volkswagen doing this. Take a look at this one tweet, someone tweeting, probably Volkswagen's best gag since that time they fooled everyone about diesel emissions. I think, look, this went from prank to deception very quickly, and that doesn't sit well uh, for a company that is still mopping up the damage from the 2015 Dieselgate scandal where their cars were, were, were they admitted their cars were fitted with devices uh, that fooled regulators. So very problematic for the company. We still await uh, more clarification from them. You know, for some, they would say this is a great marketing ploy, good PR, because look at us, we're sitting here talking about it. Is that something that they, that they could just be after? You know, I think that probably was the original uh, strategy behind this. They were they were doing this. They said uh, the company statement uh, came out yesterday. They said the renaming was designed to be an announcement in the spirit of April Fool's Day, highlighting the launch of the all-electric ID4 SUV and signaling our commitment to bringing electric mobility to all. So yes, it was designed to, to highlight their transformation into a, a much greener, uh, more electric-focused car company, uh, and sort of to be to be around the release of this uh, ID4 SUV uh, in the United States. Volkswagen is, is really pushing hard with this electric strategy. Uh, but I think this PR move may not have gone their way, Alison. Hmm. I'm still confused, Claire Sebastian. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it for the show. I'm Alison Kosick. Connect the World is next. Have a great day. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.